Psalm, the 95th chapter, 95th chapter, verses 6 through 8. And I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of the trial in the wilderness. May the Lord add his blessing as Pastor Sleisner brings us his word this morning. Trevor comes to us from the conference office, Northern New England Conference, and he's the education secretary for our depart for our uh, conference. We're glad to have you here this morning. Good to be here. We're going to leave you. Sorry. <laughs> Listen, don't hold it against me that I come from the conference office because the people there, the eleven people that work in the office there, are just like you. They're great sinners in need of a savior, and. Um, you know, before I, I took this role as, uh, as education superintendent, um, I, I taught here in this conference for 12 years and then in other conferences as well. But, um, you know, I, I realized very quickly, uh, almost four years ago, I was voted in by the church body at the constituency session. I don't know if you've heard of this, but the people that work at the conference office are actually voted in by the churches. And there was a debate going on um, back and forth about... Um, whether or not my position should be on executive committee, and there are people that were fighting for it, I could, I, I had no, I had no care one way or the other, and then finally someone got up to the mic and said, "We already have too many of them, meaning conference office people, on the executive committee," and then it hit me, I'm now one of them, and and I, I never like, you know, there's this idea about um, people that work in the conference office, and and it's like it's them versus us. You are the conference, by the way, just like us. And we're just normal people that love the Lord, that believe Jesus is coming soon, that want to finish the work that he's given us to do. Um, yes. Amen. Amen. I'm just a, a Bible-believing Seventh-day Adventist Christian that, that loves the Lord. So um, I'm so happy to be with you. I, before uh, I, I guess go any further, is it okay if we pray together? Father, I just ask that you pour your spirit out on um, us here and those that are possibly watching. Lord, you've given us a specific um, mission, and it's an incredible mission. You've waited for 6,000 years, Lord, to come be with us again. And, and we have this um, incredible job of preparing people in these last days to um, be ready for your soon coming and to live with you forever and ever. Thank you for tasking us with that responsibility. And, and Lord, I ask that you place it in each of our hearts this morning to be ready and to help get others ready for your soon coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I am your superintendent of education, by the way. Um, the thought kind of popped into my head. You know, I answer to you. And a lot of people wonder, like, well, what, what do you do? Um, you know, we do have 12 schools throughout the conference. We have six schools in Maine, three in New Hampshire, three in Vermont, and, um, which is an absolute blessing. You know, anywhere we, we have children, I believe we should have a school because our schools serve a, a very, very important role. Are our schools perfect, yes or no? No. Are our teachers perfect? No. Is our curriculum perfect? 
No, but we serve a perfect God. And, and I believe that uh, what we believe is a perfect chain of truth. And God tasks us to prepare our young people um, to develop their character that's fit for eternity. And um, simply put, I, I believe as far as education is concerned, uh, what education on the first page uh, of the book, Education, says, she says that true education is the harmonious development of the spiritual, the mental, and the physical. And she says this is true education. And that's my, that's my job is to make sure that all 12 of our schools are holding this, this statement paramount, the harmonious blending of these three. Because let's face it, in, in, in most of our schools, especially our, our schools that are not Christian, the mental piece is, is held up, and even the physical piece. But what about the spiritual piece? The spiritual piece is not. And so can it be true education? And, my, and I say, no, it can't be. It can't be true education if the author of knowledge is not at the center of it, you know, the God of the universe. And so that's, that's something that's a, that's a huge priority for me, is, is, is up, the upholding of, of these three. And... Um, you know, other than that, I, I evaluate teachers, I, uh, I, I serve on lots of committees, I evaluate the actual school program itself, whether the facility is safe, whether or not they're using the right curriculum. Um, um, but most of all, I, I, I view my role as a minister to teachers, because um, our teachers need a lot of prayer. You know, your, your local teacher here, Bill Snow, is all by himself. Matter of fact, 10 out of our 12 schools are one teacher schools. And so these teachers are laboring alone, and, and so I want to be a good support to them. And of course, there's lots and lots of committees that, that we, we serve on to try to help make our schools better. But, you know, I, I believe that God, um, I believe the angels marvel at how little we pray and ask of God. Do you ask God for enough? Or can you ask God for or too much, really? I say the answer is no. Um, a prayer that I've been specifically praying the last four years is, is I've found that a lot of people want to send their children to an Adventist school but don't have the means to do so. And now when I was a principal for, for 12 years, um, I let them come either way because it's a church school. It's not a business. So I say if the, kid wants to, if the child wants to come and they want to be a good citizen and they want to go to heaven, let them come. We'll figure out the financial piece later. But I, I've found that the financial situation is very dire in our conference, and, and so I've been praying, Lord, um, we have no endowment fund or any kind of funds set up. In fact, when I got to the conference office, I felt like, wow, I wonder where all the rubies and diamonds are stored, you know? <laughs> well, when I got there, there is no such thing, you know? No money. And when the money that do, does come in goes to your, our, our Bible workers, our pastors, our teachers, evangelist, evangelistic events, camp meeting, and it's all used up. And so, you know, the schools, the schools labor. And so I just pray, Lord, please, please just, we, you know, let's send somebody to, like, help, help make uh, it possible for, for uh, education to take place. And, and uh, a year and a half ago, a gentleman who didn't have any children and um, his wife passed away decided to leave his entire estate to Adventist Education, to our conference. Um, you know, we're still kind of in the process of preparing the property to sell, but every, every penny that's being sold is going to go to helping a child attend our schools. And it's just, what, a, what an answer to prayer. And then I just found out um, three months ago that another individual from northern Maine who, um, again, 
uh, didn't, didn't have any children. It's just amazing to me. These people that don't even have kids are giving. Um, is going to leave in the upwards of close to $200,000 to, to this fund. And so things are happening that are really exciting. And I believe Jesus is coming soon. And I'm actually going to be talking a little bit about that. Um, not the nearness of his coming, but something else. But I just want our kids to be ready. And so I want to thank you. I think you, do, you help support Capital Christian which I'm so very thankful for. It really takes a, it takes a village. It takes a team of churches in order to make a church school operate and run. But our children are worth it, amen? amen. They're, 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 they're certainly worth it. And so um, this morning, uh, what I'd like to uh, talk to you about is what is your motivation for living as a disciple for Christ? Uh, the Great Commission is to go and to make disciples, Right? You know, I think some of us fall into the trap of thinking that, that the sum total of, of being a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, or even being a Christian in general, is coming to church once a week and, and possibly the prayer meeting. And that's the sum total. And it's not. Like our brother said here earlier, like, like you know, he, 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 placed, he reached out to the Lord and said, Lord, what would you have me to do? God will place people in your path to win for him. And don't you think that you can you could just win just, just one, by the way, one, one a year? You think, you think God would give you one soul per year? I do. And if you want to pray a radical prayer, ask for one soul. Say, Lord, just put, put one person in my path. This is what I did every year as a school teacher. Lord, I just want one of these children to make a decision for Christ and live fully and completely for him. And every year God answered that prayer. And there was a baptism every year, at least one. It was an amazing, amazing exchange. And so my, my question to you this morning is, what is your motivation to live as a disciple of Christ? Is it because we're living in the end of time? Is it because how you were raised and it's all you know? I, I, I for, for many years, was in that boat. My father was a minister. And by the way, I'm not a minister. Call me Pastor Sleisner. That's, that's awfully nice of you, but I'm not a pastor. I'm a teacher. Uh, I do what Jesus does, by the way. Jesus was a teacher, not a pastor. Um, just kidding, for those that are watching online. Um, he preached too, but he was a teacher. Um, but my father was a minister, and um, you know, I grew up in the church, and, and that was wonderful, but I was lukewarm, and had, I, had, I, was, I was sleeping, and I had no clue. I was lukewarm and loving it. Matter of fact, even when I was employed as a church, here at the church, I, I, was, I was nominal at best, and I had no idea until the Lord allowed like certain uh, a couple crises to happen to, uh, a couple crises to happen in my uh, my personal life, my father was stricken with brain cancer. My wife, um, her uh, she was going to lose her her vision, and so there there was there was things that were happening that drove me to my knees. And I was at really at the crossroads. I could either like turn my back on God, or I could say, God help me. And thankfully, I didn't turn my back on Him. I said, Lord, just help me with this. And um, and, and through that experience, even though my father ended up passing away, but my, my wife, through a series of miracles, you know, uh, is fine. Praise the Lord for that. Um, but through, through all of this, the greatest part, and I think, I think my dad would have been happy about this, I was converted in the process, along with my brother. Truly converted. I gave my life wholly to the Lord. And so there's a kind of a danger being even raised in the church because it's all you know. But, you know, you've heard this said that God doesn't have any any uh, grandchildren, he only has what? Children. God only has children, which means, you know, each of us have to make that decision to follow Jesus Christ. I was reading the devotional book. There's a devotional book called Lift Him Up, and I came across this interesting statement. It says, the shortness of time 
is frequently urged as an incentive for seeking righteousness and making Christ our friend. This should not be the great motive with us, for it savors of selfishness. Should I read that one more time? Really, the whole sermon's going uh, to be kind of based, based around this statement. It says, The shortness of time is frequently urged as an incentive for seeking, righteous and making, uh, seeking righteousness and making Christ our friend. This should not be the great motive with us, for it savors of selfishness. C- can it be a motive? Are we living in the end of time, yes or no? Yes, we certainly are. So it can, but it should not be the great motive because she says it savors of selfishness. She says, is it necessary that the terrors of the day of God should be held before us that we may be compelled to right action through fear? It not be to so. It ought not to be so. And then she says, why? Jesus is attractive. Amen? That's good enough as it is. Jesus is attractive. He is full of love, mercy, and compassion. He proposes to be our friend, to walk with us through all the rough pathways of life. You see, I've heard my entire life that Jesus is coming soon, and I believe it. Amen? Amen. Yeah, Jesus is coming soon. I believe it. It's actually embedded in in our very name. We're called Seventh Day, what? Adventists, because we believe in the, the second literal, audible, visible um, coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, we believe that Jesus is coming home a second time to take us home. We also uh, know that the signs uh, that will take place just before his coming, matter of fact, those were mentioned um, just before the church service started. Like, wow, there's a lot of fires and pestilences and people perishing. And, 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 and in my field, in education, you know how many school shootings there have been this year alone? Over 20. Over 20 here in this country. Now, some of those, there's a little kind of a caveat. Some of these, some of these school shootings actually were, were people that were on a campus, and it was somebody that had a beef with each other, and they shot them, so it wasn't like a, a mass shooting kind of scenario. So that number's included, but, but over 20 school shootings? So, I mean, th- th- the love of many, the Bible says, well, what? Wax what? Cold. And so we, we, we see all these signs in Matthew 24. We actually, as Seventh-day Adventists, even know the players that are involved in the final movements, right? We, we know the, oh, the two beasts of Revelation 13. We even know what the last test of allegiance will, will, will come down to, right? We know that's going to come down to, to, to the Sabbath and Sabbath allegiance. And yet we wait and we wait and we wait. And... I think the reason I feel compelled to preach this because what I've found in my personal life is that since I'm watching for these signs, I find myself falling into a sense of complacency because these final movements aren't wrapping up the way we know they're going to wrap up. Does this make sense? And, that, and that's what God does not want for us. He doesn't want us to be complacent. Matter of fact, I believe there's a sense of urgency all throughout the Bible that's actually outside of the second coming. There, 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 is, there is a sense of urgency that's not even wrapped up in, 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 the, in the soon coming of, of, of Jesus Christ. And remember that, that, that the, the urgency to like make Christ our friend um, shouldn't be rooted in, in the second coming. She says it's, it shouldn't be the great motive for us, for it savors of selfishness. 
I'd like for us to, um, and, and, and by in no, no means am I saying that I don't believe Jesus is coming soon, because I do believe it. Matter of fact, Jesus says in John 14, he says, you know, I, I, now I tell you before it happens that when it does happen, you might what? You might believe. There's nothing greater to me than prophecy, because, you know, um, you know Jesus tells us before it happens, and, and, and every single time, every, everything that that's the Bible has predicted to come true has come true. And it, all it does is bolster our faith. It's, it's, it's absolutely amazing. Um, I just don't want any of us here, including myself, to fall into a sense of complacency or what Revelation 3 says is, is a lukewarm or a Laodicean state. Do you ever wish that that, that wasn't there, by the way, Revelation 3? You, you, know, you know, there's these seven churches in Revelation, and, and <clears throat> most Christians, most, even most denominations believe that these seven churches represent seven stages of Earth's history, right? Or church history. You know, the first one being the apostolic church and the last church being the church in the end of time. And the last church, it says that, that it makes God sick to, him, sick to his stomach because they're neither hot nor cold. And so that they're neither hot or cold. He wants to vomit them out of his mouth. I wish that wasn't there. It's not a good picture that, that we, God's church, make God sick to his stomach. He doesn't want us to be complacent. He, he wants us to finish this work that he's given us to do. And I believe there's a sense of urgency all throughout the Bible. Um, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Joshua 24. We're going to look at uh, three, three verses, three quick verses. And these verses are outside of the context of the second coming. Joshua 24, and we're going to start in verse 14. Joshua chapter uh, 24, starting in verse 14. To set a context for this, this verse, you, you know this verse very well. Matter of fact, a lot of us have, have little pictures or doilies stitched with, with this verse up in our home. But this is at, we're at the end of Joshua's life here. And Joshua says something very interesting to his people at the end of his life. He says in Joshua 24, 14, he says, Now therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. And he says with an exclamation point, serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves when? This day, it says. It says, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in which the land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let me ask you a question. Is there a sense of urgency in this passage? There is. He says to this group, and, and, and by the way, had Jesus come the first time? No, we, we're hundreds and hundreds of years away from the first advent of Jesus Christ, yet, yet Joshua has a sense of urgency for his people, and the urgency is that there's false gods. And if we don't think, please don't even think for a second that, that, that since there isn't a golden calf out there, that, that there aren't golden calves out there, because there are. My wife reminds me all the time that the Patriots, whom I like to watch, can be, can be a golden calf. But it's, it's, it's true. The television, it actually took, and there's nothing wrong with the television, and, but the television, it actually took my, my satellite dish. This was actually part of my conversion process when my, my wife got sick and my father got sick. Um, our receiver died. And, and um, I didn't realize how much time we were wasting rushing the kids off the bed to watch our favorite shows while we weren't doing worship and praying together. You know what I mean? That was my golden calf. 
Joshua's tell, telling his people here, like, put, put away those gods. And for me, it may not be a god for you, but it was, it was actually a foreign god for me. And, and it took my receiver, like, uh, blowing up. And, of course, I ordered a new one, but the new one had TiVo because you could record the shows. This is awesome. You know, and in and, and HD. So I was very excited. But you know what we did? We, we replaced that television. We didn't rush the children off to bed. Instead, you know what we did? We, the kids fell asleep on the couch, and we read them Bible stories. Isn't that nice? And we did it for a couple weeks, and then, the, and, then the, and then the new receiver showed up. And I hadn't seen SportsCenter in two weeks. And so I, I hooked this thing up, and thank, thank the Lord for godly wives. She, she asked me, she said, what are you doing? What are you doing? I'm like, what do you mean, what am I doing? I'm hooking up the new receiver, you know? This is great. It's got TiVo. And she says, no. She's like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, what do you mean? You know, I look at it, and she's like, no. Haven't these last two weeks been absolutely amazing? I'm like, yeah, they have been. She's like, we're not hooking it up. And of course, we battle back and forth. Happy wife, happy life. She won. <laughs> she, she won, but you know what? It was through the Spirit of God that she spoke. She's, you know, I really believe she was convicted. And I failed as the priest of the home. You know, I, I had an opportunity there to step up and be like, no, nah, this is not right. You know, we've been doing wonderful things, but... My wife stepped up for me. My point is, that was a foreign God for me. Joshua here saying, put those gods away because choose you this day. I had to make a choice then. But here's the thing. When do you have to choose? Really? When do I have to choose? Every day. Really every moment of every day. And it's a battle. It's a constant battle of self. You know, am I going to surrender what I want as a selfish, carnal human being? You know, that's, that's born with a sinful human nature. Am I going to put that away? Ho- hopefully we do. I need, I need a hurry because I don't want to go too long. I want to show you a short video to kind of illustrate this point, but not, not yet. Um, let's go to 1 Kings 18, another story we know very well. This is a la- little bit later on, 1 Kings chapter 18. This is the story of Elijah. You know, it hadn't rained for years. Elijah said it wouldn't rain because, again, the people had false gods set up in the land, right? And so, and so Elijah wanted to settle the question once and for all. Like, is God really God or is, it, or, is it, or is it Baal? Is it Asherah? Is it all these other foreign gods? So 1 Kings chapter 18, um, and we're going to start with verse 20. It says, So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together in Mount Carmel, And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered not a word. Is there a sense of urgency in Elijah's voice here? I I believe there is. There's a sense of urgency outside of the second coming of Jesus. He says, how long are you going to falter between two opinions? You keep waffling. You keep going back and forth. If God is God, serve him, right? And unfortunately, the people didn't answer my word, but we know that God caused fire to rain down from heaven, and they all fell on their face, and they worshiped God. Turn with me to the uh, scripture verse uh, that was read this morning by Dan uh, in uh, Psalms 95, 6 through 8. Psalms 95, 6 through 8. So we see here that Joshua had a sense of urgency. We see Elijah had a sense of urgency. And David here, or the psalmist here, has 
a sense of urgency. Psalms 95, 6 through 8. It says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion as in the day in the wilderness. And so here we see that he is calling for us to do it in the future, correct? Today. Here we see a sense of urgency. He's saying, today, if you hear his voice. God is speaking to each of us on various issues, isn't he? Matter of fact, the things that I actually struggle with, you'd probably think I'm, 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 a, I'm weird or I'm like weak. But I would probably turn around and say the same thing with you. Like, oh, how, how could you struggle with that? All of us are born with different tendencies. We're born with a, a different makeup. And, and it's very real when it says that the sins of the fathers will go to the third and the fourth generation. I look at some of the things that my father uh, struggled with and did and then what my grandfather. It's, it's unbelievable how that gets passed down. But here, here's the issue is that God is prompting us and he's prompting us today, right, to listen to him and not to harden our heart. And it's, there's a sense of urgency outside of Scripture. All right, not outside of Scripture, outside of the second coming. Excuse me. And then Paul even says it in 2 Corinthians 5.20. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. He says this. This is awesome. Paul says, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. And I want you to pick up, by the way, on, on some of these words that he uses here. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Do you see the words that Paul's using here? There's a sense of urgency in these words, and these, and these are outside of the second coming of Jesus Christ. He says, we are pleading with you, we're imploring you, and we're, I'm pleading with you to accept the, um, the grace of God, not in vain. And so there's a sense of urgency we see here. I believe that, um, well, actually, let's go a little bit farther, too. Uh, in in uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2, he says this. He says, we then... As workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Verse 2, for he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, when? What's the, what's the word say? Now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Do you believe that this morning? Is today the day of salvation? You, you, you brought up the, you brought up the uh, duck boat disaster that happened. Do you think, you think they, they, when they got on that boat that they were thinking there was going to be some kind of accident? Yes or no? No. And, and like what, what was mentioned, like nine, nine members of one family perished. I mean, it's a disaster. And that's, listen, and, and this is not fear-mongering, but today doesn't guarantee us anything. Matter of fact, our sense of urgency should be, that, that should be a little bit of a motivation, that we live in a dangerous world. We live in a dangerous world. We can fall into the trap of thinking that uh, since we're a, we're a believer, nothing bad can happen to me. Although 11 out of the 12 uh, disciples were martyred, by the way. They were martyred. Each of us here, including me, know that's not true. All of us have lost a friend, a loved one, way too early. As a matter of fact, 1 Peter 5.8 says this, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may lick. 
devour, devour. Satan is a roaring lion that wants to devour you. And he may not want you necessarily physically dead as long as you're spiritually dead. And that's why today's the day of your salvation. Making a choice every single day to submit to Christ every single day. Matthew 10 puts it this way. Jesus put, puts it this way. He says, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. He says, But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils, and they will scourge you in the synagogues. And the brother shall deliver up brother to death, and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And you're thinking, because you live in the United States of America, that this isn't happening right now. It is happening, and it's happening in this church. And I'm not saying this specific church, but it's happening in the Seventh-day Adventist church. It's happening in the Northern New England Conference where people are delivering, us up, delivering each other up to be killed. How are we killing each other? Through gossip. You know, Jesus says that uh, um, if you hate your brother, you've done what? You've, you already murdered him in your heart. And so we think, that, oh, this isn't literally happening, so I don't have to have a sense of, you know, we do have to have a sense of urgency because gossip is, is, is killing our churches and, and hating each other and not having the common decency to practice Matthew 18. Does everyone know what Matthew 18 really says? Yeah. You know, if you've got a problem with someone, you need to go to your best friend and tell them about it. Isn't that what Matthew 18 says? No, no, no. You go to that person that you have an issue with, right? And you work it out with them even before you bring your altar here to church. It says, um, so reason number one, really, why we should have a sense of urgency is we live in a, in a messed up, sinful world, and today doesn't guarantee anything. It doesn't guarantee anything. But the, I think the best reason, the biggest reason, is character development. What's the only thing we're going to take to heaven with us? Our character. Our character and our converts, right? Those that we help win for the Lord, right? They'll go to heaven with us as well. And what is your character? You know, what is your character? In education, I love this book, Education, page 225, it says, Character building is the most important work ever entrusted to human beings. That's why I believe in Seventh-day Adventist education. Because we're trying to train a child up in the way they should go. Amen? And she says it's the most important work ever entrusted to human beings. And never before was its diligent study so important as now. Is there a sense of urgency in her voice? Yeah, she's saying now, character development, character development, character development. But it's not character development in just me. It's character development in you. You ever fall into the trap, by the way, when you listen to a sermon? My wife does this all the time. She's like, oh, because yeah, I'll, I'll go and preach in churches. I'm usually in a church at least... Um, two times a month, sometimes three times a month, and she, she'll go to church. And I'm like, oh, you should have heard that. That sermon was for you, you know? And I'm like, what? You know, I, it makes me laugh, and I'm thinking, honey, that sermon's for each of us, right? And so you might fall into this trap here. You're saying, well, you know, yeah, so-and-so needs to work on their character. We all need to be refining that fire, right? We all, we all have sharp edges in our life that need to get, that need to get molded off. Um, she says, never was any previous generation called to meet, meet issues so momentous. Never before were young men and young women confronted by perils so great as confront them today. She said this 100 years ago. Imagine what she would say now. Our sister said that she, she's you know, working in the doctor's office and she's seen children that are more and more depressed, and, and, and it's true. Depression um, 
is, is out of control in our schools, in our Seventh-day Adventist schools. Matter of fact, if you had the privilege of going to see Scott Ritzma at camp meeting, he did the media on the brain, he's finding that the, the, this blue light, it's not necessarily even what you're watching, but that blue light staring at a screen is actually changing the chemical makeup in your brain. It's causing, you know, this, this amount of screen time is causing depression. And our children are, are spending eight hours a day glued to a screen. Eight hours a day. I mean, this is, it's, it's insane. And we, and we wonder why we, we struggle with such things. Like, actually, what's happening in the actual mind? And so character development is, is so important. And what these, our children, what we're looking at, because we, we know how character's formed. Your character is, is made up of your thoughts, right? It's what you think about. It's your feelings. And if you think about something enough, it, you end up doing an action, right? So thoughts lead to actions. Actions lead to, if you do actions enough times, it can lead to a what? A habit. Some good habits, some bad habits. Your habits like reap your, uh, your lifestyle. It's what, the style in which you live your life. And then, and then your lifestyle determines your character. And your character determines your destiny. Where you're going to go when you breathe your last. Or hopefully when you see Jesus Christ coming in the air. So our actions have a twofold influence. You know, your actions actually not only affect others, it actually affects you as well. Um, in the book, uh, Christian Education, on page 92, it says this. It says, actions make habits, habits character, and if we do not guard our habits, we shall not be qualified to unite with heavenly agencies in the work of salvation. That's our job, is to make disciples, Amen. And so we need, to, we need to guard our thoughts, and we need to like, be careful that our thoughts are leading to good, to good actions. Because um, God wants our character fit for eternity. Have you ever looked at heaven from the, um, from the perspective of the angels? You, you think when the angels look at, I think about this, when the angels look down at my life, and my thoughts, and my, my actions, and the things that I say and do behind closed doors, do you think they're like celebrating that, yes, Trevor's going to be with us forever and ever? And, and if the answer is no, then that's something that you should be praying about. You should be praying that God change this part of my character so my character's fit to, be, to live in eternity forever and ever with, with the, heavenly, the heavenly host and with God himself. Change my character, Lord, please. Every act of life, however unimportant, has its influence in forming the character. A good character is more precious than any worldly possession. Um, and so how do we do this? There's a verse that says, let this mind be in you that was also in who? Christ Jesus. And so, and so ask the Lord for this. Say, Lord, give me your mind. Give me your mind. Lord, I want to think your thoughts. I want to do your work. I, I want to be like you, Lord, so that I can give you all the honor and glory. Also in uh, Proverbs 23, 7, it says, For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. So, so what you think about, ask God to guard your thoughts, what you're thinking about. Again, um, I took my wife to... I, I'm glad she's not here. She was going to come, by the way, because I'm going to keep using her as an example. I, um, <laughs> I was taking her somewhere, and, and, and she, was she was on her phone. All right, She was on her little idol, 
And um, just kidding, it's not her idol. I shouldn't say that. But, but we do bow to it. You notice that, right? That her number. <laughs> but no, she, so she was on her phone, and, and she, she wasn't talking to me. And it was like about 10 minutes went by. And then I pop on the radio to listen to sports radio, which is basically, it's nonsense. It's drivel. But, I, but, but it's something that I, I like to put into my brain, and I shouldn't. And it took her like two seconds. She's like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, turn that, turn that off. These guys are arguing about nothing. It's, it has nothing to do with God. You know, and so she, she, she tells me, you know, get that out of, get out of your mind. And, and Proverbs 23 actually kind of popped into my head, right? For as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So is he. Hey, I shouldn't be thinking about those kind of things. So our thoughts and actions actually are doing something physiologically in your brain. Your brain is made up of billions of neurons. These neurons are made up of something called dendrites, and, 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 the, and they look like the, um, the top of a, a leafless tree. And they're also made up of axons, which are like, look like the roots of a tree. And, um, and there's a, something in between them. They're not completely connected. It's something called synapses. And so essentially, this is how it works. When you, when you think about something, there's certain parts of your brain that, that are, are working and and these connections are actually being made. And when, you, and when you think about something enough, all of a sudden you start making more and more and more neuronal connections. Matter of fact, they call it brain plasticity. I, I think we're about ready for this video. If you wanna pop this, this thing down. Um, I just want you to, I wanna show you something about how marvelous your brain is and, and that, that you have a complete brain unlike what you're gonna see here, but you're gonna see that you're fearfully and wonderfully made, but God wants to, God wants you to think good thoughts because he understands what's physiologically happening in your mind, the paths that you're, 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 you're forming. And it basically, it looks like this. Imagine that if, if we were in a field full of like uh, brambles and bushes, I heard a pastor actually give this illustration, it's pretty powerful. And you were to walk through the, the, these bushes and these brambles, would it be hard the first time you walk through it, yes or no? It would be. But if you walk back the way you came, would it be a bit easier? Yeah. It would. But if you keep walking this path back and forth, back and forth, soon there's going to be what? A path with no resistance. That's how, fa that's how your fa habits are. Soon there, there, you have no resistance at all. So, okay. Do we have any audio? Then reinvent itself throughout life. We are beginning to harness the brain's incredible ability to invent itself, then reinvent itself throughout life. This girl is a testament to the amazing resilience of the human brain. Young Hilly Miller leads an idyllic life as a nine-year-old girl. You would never guess that she has undergone some of the most drastic surgery imaginable. Happy 
first three years were textbook normal. Happy birthday, dear Jody. Then, about six weeks after her third birthday, a storm of epileptic seizures took control of her brain. She couldn't use her left arm hardly at all. Uh, she could barely use the left leg, seizing a good, good deal of the time multiple types of seizures. Ordinary life became impossible. Medicines did nothing, and the seizures threatened to turn fatal. Desperate, Jody's parents brought her to pediatric neurologist Eileen Bynum. We found her seizures were all, all coming from her right hemisphere. And we knew that there is virtually nothing else, nothing but Rasmussen syndrome that can produce that picture uh, in a young child. Rasmussen syndrome is a degenerative brain disorder that disrupts the electrical activity that makes our brains work. Tiny electrical explosions were flaring up in Jody's right hemisphere. As seizures became almost constant, she lost control of her left side. Only one radical treatment option remained. We knew that she was never going to have her seizures controlled with medicine, and we knew that she and her family faced taking out that half of the brain. Dr. Bynum recommended a daring surgery called a hemispherectomy. It would be performed by pediatric neurosurgeon Ben Carson. The whole concept of taking out half of a person's brain uh, would seem to, to most people impossible. Human beings are incredible creatures with a brain that is beyond belief in terms of its capabilities. To the point where we can take half of it out and still function in a normal way. 85% of our brain consists of the cerebral cortex, which is divided into two hemispheres, each with four main lobes. The cortex handles many of our higher functions. Areas on both sides control thinking, movement, and sensation. But the right side controls our left side, and vice versa. Jody would lose almost all of her right hemisphere, and the cavity would fill with cerebrospinal fluid. The operation has to be performed with great precision to avoid damaging the parts of the brain that control Jody's life functions, like heartbeat and breathing. The surgery went flawlessly. What we're looking at here is an image, an MRI, that was done on Jody after her surgery. And what it shows us is the fact that we removed her entire right hemisphere. And what we're able to see here is indeed her very normal left hemisphere and all the beautiful gyri of her cortex. And we can see right down the middle, the right hemisphere that was there is now replaced by fluid. But how could Jody function normally with only one hemisphere? It's because of a miraculous ability of the brain called plasticity. Our brains can actually change shape, creating new connections between neurons or brain cells to replace lost or damaged ones. Jody's left brain started reconnecting almost immediately. This young lady had half her brain removed, went home, I guess maybe 10 days later, and was already walking. She was ambulating, she was able to walk out of the hospital. 
And that's because her left hemisphere had such resilience, such plasticity. It was able to say, okay, something needs to move her left leg. Whoa, good alternate. Jody continues to work on training her brain to overcome the slight paralysis in her left side. But enough, now that's very good. You need to do that stretching stuff on him. You know that, don't you? Are you doing enough of it? You think so? The human brain is just an awesome thing because every time I look at it, I say to myself, this is the thing that makes this person unique. It still is just such a wonderful thing to find a young person whose life now can move on, who's no longer having seizures, who's developing in a normal fashion. I take the good with the bad, and I say, this is a bad thing, potentially, that we have to do for an extremely good cause. Pretty amazing video, huh? So in the beginning of the video, it said this was an example on how the brain can not only invent itself, but reinvent itself. So a lot of people say, well, I'm too old. You can't teach old dog new tricks. Well, the new brain science actually says that, that you can. Older people, and we're talking, they've done studies on, on, on people in their 80s, were able to form new habits, were able, able to learn new things. Is it a little more difficult? Yeah, because those pathways that you've, you've blazed in your brain have been there for year after year after year, but it is possible. This is an amazing thing. The mind is an amazing thing, but a mind, a mind that has the mind of Christ is even a more beautiful thing. And that's what we should ask God for, is to have the mind of Christ, because there's something more urgent, I believe, than the second coming of Christ, and that's us being ready, our character being fit, for eternity because when your character is fit I, this might, might sound a little uh not theologically correct but i have a theory on why our churches are not full maybe because god doesn't want to bring people into this church because our church isn't ready to receive them does this make sense and it starts not at the, or your neighbor it's not your wife it's not your your in-laws it's not your your friend it's it's you it's me and this is the covenant and the goal that I'm making with God. God, change me each and every day. And when you get a hold of my, my mind, Lord, help me to reach the minds of my teachers that reach the minds of their students. And then we can get off this planet. You know, Ellen White puts it like this. She's, you know, she's so ahead of her time. This, this lady's unbelievable. She says this. She says in child guidance, parents, be careful what example and what ideas you give your children. Their minds are plastic and impressions are easily made. She, she talked about brain, and there's other quotes. Where, Google the word plastic. She knew about brain plasticity years before it became a, a, a current trend. I'm going to close on this. I know I've gone uh, way too long here. So today, what I'm asking you to do is choose today. Choose to follow God fully today. Choose today to spend time with him each and every day, like Jesus did. Jesus got up early in the morning, right? even before anybody got up, seek his face because he is lovely and worthy. Choose today to live by his word. How much of all of it? How much of his word? All of it. All of it. Choose to talk to him because he's your friend. Choose today to share the joy you have with others. This world needs it. You know, people are starving, I believe, for this peace. 
and this joy. You know, he, God doesn't want more members. He wants more missionaries. Share with others what you know. Join with me in making a commitment to be in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And Lord, we, all, we know that can only happen if we surrender moment by moment, day by day. And Lord, it's, I just long for that time in which, which there's a revival that hasn't been seen since apostolic times. A revival in our hearts that leads to, to reformation. And, and, and Lord, we know the final movements will be rapid ones, but Lord, prepare my character. Help me prepare my children's character and my, my wife, and my loved ones, and my church family here, Lord, help each of us to be ready and to, and to be so close with you that um, we listen to your, your, your promptings. And, and, and Lord, I just, um, my desire, and I know it's your desire, is that our churches are, are a safe place, a loving place, but a place in which when people show up here, they see Christ in us, which we know is the hope of glory. And so, Lord, in, in a radical, mighty way, pour your spirit out on this church, the people here, so that they can live holy and completely for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.